Good morning, everyone. Happy Father's Day to the fathers amongst us. Um, I'm going through the Gospel of John. Hopefully you can remember where we were last. Um, Jesus just cleared the temple and we're in chapter 3. And we ended that with uh, the Jewish leaders coming to Jesus and they said, what authority have you got to do this? And Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. So we're going to go from... 3 verse 1. I'm going to be cutting in and out of the text and uh, filling in the blanks because it's, it's quite a cryptic piece. Um, and so it's, it's really going to help if you've got the Word of God in front of you. I'd really encourage you to do that. Um, I know a lot of you are real geniuses, but it's probably going to be quite difficult to keep up still if, if you don't have the Word in front of you. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. So here we have this guy, his name's Nicodemus, and he's a Pharisee. A Pharisee basically means the separate ones. And he'd, he'd made a vow that he was going to be 100% obedient to the law of God. Not only that, the Pharisees were known for going above and beyond and doing everything they possibly could to try and stay within the law of God and to be obedient to it. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection, like that we will be raised again to, to a new life. They believed in the afterlife. They believed in spirits. They believed in moral accountability, that God would hold us accountable for what we've done. And they believed in a coming Messiah. Well, as soon as we hear the word Pharisee, a really dangerous thing we do is we just kind of instantly go to villain. You know, here's the villain of the text. It's not really like that. The, The Pharisees were the good guys. The Pharisees, in a world that, pretty much like the world we live in, most people ignore God. They don't care what God thinks about things. Or feels about things. In that world, the Pharisees were trying to honour God and obey God. That's a huge thing. I mean, we see them as the villains because we know the harsh rebukes that Jesus had with them on, on some matters. But they're, they're the good guys. They're devoted to God. And they're all about the kingdom of God. This Nicodemus fellow, he was all about God's kingdom. All about the people of God obeying God as their, their king. Um, and Nicodemus wasn't just a Pharisee. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He was, on this, he was in this group that ruled the Jews. He was high up amongst the Jews. He was a, he's a, a leader in this kingdom of God. It goes beyond that as well. There's, there's a few phrases that are used throughout this text. There's a teacher and the teacher. Nicodemus calls Jesus a teacher, which is kind of ironic. And Jesus calls Nicodemus the teacher. So there's an idea here that Nicodemus was actually so high up on this Jewish ruling council that he was the teacher of teachers. This guy's no mug. He probably knew most of the, what we know as the Old Testament off by heart. Like he can stand and recite it at will. Probably the whole Torah, so the first five books of the Bible. 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then the Psalms and the Prophets. Part of his job and his role was reciting the Old Testament word for word from memory. Most probably, most sources point to to that, that being a fact. He would have begun this, you know, he would have been proficient at it by 12 and then even better at 15. This guy's had a lifetime of studying the Word of God. And so how does, how does this man approach Jesus? Well, he approaches at night. And so we know John. John has this... John, the author of this book, the disciple Jesus loved, he, he spent so much time with Jesus, knew Jesus so well, he had all these different stories he could pick from. And he deliberately picks stories to just really paint a picture of who Jesus is and use so many clever little devices. So he picks this story of Nicodemus coming at night because he's already talked in the foyer, which is John 1, 1 to 18, about night or darkness being disbelief or or not being able to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. So Nicodemus comes at night and he also comes with compliments. He comes bearing compliments, calls Jesus a rabbi, a teacher, the one from God, a great one who performs miracles and signs. So it's really buttering Jesus up here. And we're not quite sure why. Text doesn't tell us. Maybe it's a political game. He's like, wow, this guy's getting really powerful amongst the kingdom of God, amongst the people of God. So as a leader, I need to figure out what he's about. Um, Yeah, maybe he was actually truly seeking Jesus and knew he was special and wanted to know more. Or maybe he was on a fact-finding mission. Maybe he was sent like they were sent to John the Baptist to figure out just who Jesus claims to be. But Jesus doesn't even really give him a chance to get started. Doesn't give him a chance at all. Jesus just goes straight for the jugular all the time. He's just... Jesus cuts through to the heart of the matter with his words every time. We're going to go from verse 3. Where Jesus replied, Truly, truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. In one phrase, Jesus says so much. This has so many implications for Nicodemus. He's saying, you can't even see the thing you're meant to be a leader of. You can't even see it. You're meant to be about the kingdom and teaching of the kingdom, but you're not part of the kingdom. You can't even see the kingdom. Your life is a false start. You haven't even started yet. You're not even a kingdom baby. How much does a baby know? How knowledgeable is a newborn? What are their achievements? What competence does a newborn have? What Jesus is saying is, in the kingdom of God, if someone is born fresh into the kingdom of God, like a baby with nothing, they are more in the kingdom than you. They know more of the kingdom than you. They've achieved more in the kingdom than you. This is huge. Your efforts, all your efforts, your life of seeking God, of knowing the word, it all amounts to nothing. It's all been a false start. Nothing has moved you any closer. I was talking to a guy who's part of our congregation. He runs ultra marathons. It's like 42 Ks is a marathon. 
So it's like kind of 50 to 150 is an ultra. And he was in, running in a marathon. And I think it was above 100 k's he was doing. And he took a wrong turn. And so he runs for hours and gets no closer to the finish line. No closer. And he was telling me that he was just... He was meant physically and mentally, he was already melting down. And then he realized that all of these efforts brought him no closer. And that's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. All your efforts, everything you're doing, and you are no closer to the finish line, no closer to the goal of the kingdom. Goes beyond that as well. There's a few people present during birth. I've never seen one. Not really high on my list of things to say. But there's a baby present and it's participating somehow in the birth. But it's not really a work of the baby. The newborn's not doing a great deal. This is a work of the mother. The mother's doing the work. When you were born in that room, you were not the person working hard. You were not the person in pain. You were not the person pushing. This is a work of God. There's actually a wordplay here. There's this again and above wordplay. Born again is actually born again slash above. It's like the saying, nailed it. This born again is the dual meaning. And John's tapping into that dual meaning. It's like me, if I hung a picture with a nail and I stood back and said, nailed it. I would have nailed it, literally nailed it. And I would have nailed it as in, I did it with precision, spot on. And so being born again is an above and again birth. It's not a work of man, it's a work of God. In this new birth, Nicodemus can do nothing. So not only is he no closer to his goal of the kingdom, but there's nothing he can do to move himself there. Everything in John connects back to the foyer and helps you understand. You can put a note here in the foyer. John 1.12 Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he, became, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent or human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Being born again is a thing of God. It's a work of God. Happy Father's Day to the fathers. Uh, But we need a new father. And the only way to have a new father, a heavenly father, a perfect father, is a new birth. And that new birth doesn't come about through us. It's a work of God. So Nicodemus, you're not in this kingdom. And all your work so far has brought you nowhere. And even worse, there's nothing you can do. Let's keep reading. Verse 4, how can someone be born again when they're old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. We always imagine that Nicodemus is stupid here, but he's not. We clearly know he's not. He's not, a, he's not a silly guy. This guy's usually the smartest guy in the room. Probably not this time, though. Maybe he's being sarcastic. Or maybe he's just buying time. You know how sometimes you're talking to someone and you realise you don't understand what they're saying? I just do not get what this person's saying. And the logical conclusion is either he's ignorant or you're ignorant. Someone in the room is stupid. 
Someone in the discussion, in this conversation, is stupid. I'm not sure if it's me or if it's him. And so sometimes you just buy time. I often do that. Next time you see me saying something a little bit sarcastic and weird, it might be because I'm trying to figure out whether you're stupid or I'm stupid. <laughs> Maybe that's what he's doing. But what we can see, even in this remark that may be sarcastic or a time burner, he keeps it all about someone else. He doesn't say, what, what could I do? It's all pushed away from himself. And it's, he's also thinking physical and earthly. He's not thinking about spiritual things. He hasn't realised that this born again is born above. So let's continue. In verse 5, Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Well, that's water and wind. Wind, spirit, same word. No one can enter unless they're born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. Jesus tells him this new birth is a water-wind birth. It's a water and spirit birth. And it's not a physical thing. It's not a human thing. It's a heavenly thing. It's a God thing. It's a spiritual thing. A physical human being gives birth to a physical human being. Like replicates like. But to be spiritually alive, you need to be made alive by God. This is a bit confusing. He continues in verse 7. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You see, the Spirit, wind is the same word, but also the Spirit is like the wind. We can't comprehend it and we can't control it. We can't see it, but we can see its effects. We can't see the wind but we can see its effects. We can't see the Spirit of God, but we can see the effects of what it's doing. And so Nicodemus asks the question, how can this be? He's as confused as you might be now. And Jesus replies, you are Israel's teacher and you don't understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, but you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And now you're probably even more confused. This is what happens when Jesus talks to you. So Nicodemus is still probably trying to figure out who's the stupid person he's in the discussion. It's a cryptic answer. Jesus says, I know because I'm I'm from heaven. I know spiritual things because I'm born of the Spirit. I know godly, heavenly things because I'm from heaven. But he also says Nicodemus should know. As a teacher, as a student of the law of God and the word of God, Nicodemus should know. And so we know that the answer is, is in the Old Testament. 
The thing that's going to open our eyes to what Jesus is saying lays in the Old Testament. I'm going to give you two key verses that really unlock this for us. The first one is Isaiah 44. I'm going to go from verse 3. I'm going to do verse 4 as well. God is talking to Jacob, who's known as Israel. He's had his name changed to Israel. And he's talking specifically about Israel's descendants, who are God's people, the kingdom of God. So he says, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And then there's an even clearer one in Ezekiel 36. We're going to go 24 to 27. And the question is, how will God make a people for himself? And God answers it. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from your impurities and from your your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and I will move you to follow my decrees. And be careful to keep my laws. These two scriptures show how God sees humans. We're dry. We're spiritually dead. We're lifeless. We have a heart of stone. We're sinful. We're idolatrous. We, have, we worship things other than God. We're disobedient. That kind of person is not fit for the kingdom of God. You can't enter the kingdom of God like that. That's our problem as human beings. That's Nicodemus's problem. He's dry and spiritually dead, lifeless, stone-hearted, sinful, idolatrous and disobedient. How can this problem be overcome? And Nicodemus has spent his whole life doing outward acts. Nicodemus is trying to overcome this problem from the outside in. He does physical things. He does outward things, acts, to try and change who he is so that he is fit for the kingdom of God. But these verses teach us that this doesn't work. Jesus knows, he sees the heart of Nicodemus and knows that this doesn't work. He knows that Nicodemus is no closer to the kingdom with this outside-in approach. In Matthew, Jesus says to the Pharisees, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom ahead of you. It's prostitutes before priests with the outside-in method. But God has a solution. What is God's solution? And in this verse, you should be able to see both of these Old Testament pieces of Scripture have this repetition that should catch your eye. Have you seen it? It's I will. I will. I will pour out water. I will pour out my spirit. I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you. I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will put my spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. Jesus is standing before Nicodemus and first of all he's saying, I am, I am God. 
I am the solution. And he's also saying, with these cryptic references to the Old Testament, he's saying, I will. I am and I will. There's a new solution. Instead of man trying to work outside in, God works inside out. There's a spiritual act that comes on the inside and works outward. Nicodemus started at the end. You see in Ezekiel 36, 24 to 27, at the end it says, move you to follow my decrees and carefully keep my laws. Nicodemus started there on the outside. But the solution of God is to start on the inside. That is being born again. It's a work of the Holy Spirit to come into you and do an inside-out transformation. Let's continue to read. We're going to go from 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. But everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Now, I can't unpack all of this, but we're going to do a little bit together. Jesus used an Old Testament type here to present himself as the antitype. Remember, there's foreshadowings in the Old Testament. There's little pictures of who Jesus is in the Old Testament, and Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of these pictures, these images, these things. And he gives this story from Exodus 21. You might remember it. Such a bizarre story. The people are disobedient and they're grumbling and they're complaining against God and they're sinning against God. So God's like, well, there's sin against me and then there's consequences. That consequence is death. And so God sends snakes. These snakes bite the people and the people are dying from the snake bites. Already the story's a little bit strange, but it gets stranger. The people say to Moses... We need to be forgiven by God or else we're just going to get killed by these snakes. And so Moses goes to God and God goes, I have a solution. You need to make a snake, put it on a stick and then hold it up so people can look at it. Super weird. So Moses does it. He just gets some bronze and he just makes a snake. I'm not sure if he outsourced that or if he was just really good with bronze. Sticks it on a stick and holds it in the air and people look at it. And when they look at it, they're saved. This is a type, this is a picture of what God is going to do. Sin, our rebellion against God, is brought death, just like the snakes brought death. But then God provides a solution, who is Jesus. And then when Jesus is lifted up on that cross, and when he's lifted up and glorified, we look to him. We look to God's solution. 
That is Jesus. And we are saved. We are given life, not death. But it's explained further in that this John 3.16. You've heard it a million times. Please put it in the context of this verse. Give it a home in this little story so that you can understand it further. Believing. What is believing in, in Jesus? What must I do to be saved? This believing. It's looking to Jesus. Just like they look to the snake. Death is coming as a consequence. But you look to Jesus to be saved. What's this life that we get? This life is eternal life. They were saved just from the death of the snake death. But here in John 3.16, we know that the life that's granted to us by looking to Jesus is an eternal life. It's a miracle of God, this rebirth that puts us as children of God into the kingdom of God. And it's my job to try and get you to believe. When I use the book of John, I take on the purpose of John. I want you to believe so that you can be saved. But I don't know how to do that. I have no idea. That's my confession. I have no idea. The wind blows where it pleases. I don't know how to do it. Reminds me of the story of Charles Spurgeon. He was 15. It was a snowstorm. He was a young man wondering how he can be saved, struggling with Christianity. He couldn't go to his normal church. All he could get to was a tiny Methodist church down the road. So he trudged through the snow. There's 12 people there. And this preacher stood up, and it wasn't the preacher because the preacher couldn't make it. It was just a layperson, someone from the congregation. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. The text was, look to me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. It's from Isaiah 45, which is just after one of the texts I use. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that didn't matter. There I was. I, I thought, there's some hope in this text. And then the preacher continued, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now that does not take a deal of, great deal of effort. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just, look, well, a man need not go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, yet you can look. A man need not be worth a thousand a year. You know, that's not much these days. But he can look. Anyone can look. A child can look. But this is what the text said. So he continues. He says, look unto me. And then in a broad Essex accent, he said, look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend. Look unto me. Sitting at the Father's right hand. Look unto me. And he turned to Spurgeon because there was like 12 people there. So he knew that Spurgeon was a visitor. And he said, young man, you look very miserable. And you'll always be miserable unless you look to Jesus. And Spurgeon says this. The Methodist preacher said, young man, look to Jesus. Look, you have nothing to do but look and live. And Spurgeon says, I saw at once a way of salvation. Like as when the bronze serpent was lifted up and the people only needed to look to be healed. So it was with me. 
I was waiting to do 50 things to be saved. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. (laughs) If you've never had the rebirth and you thought maybe it was a difficult thing, all I can do is present to you your sin and your need and I can present to you this Jesus and I can say, look, I'm not sure how it happens, but it happened to me at the age of 15 too. (laughs) I knew everything about the gospel. I grew up in, on the front seat of a church. Yet at 15, suddenly, the wind. I don't understand how it happened, but I was reborn. And I have a challenge for you guys. Some people think the gospel message, this message, it's like learning the recorder. Who loves the recorder? <laughs> like you learn, who learned it in like year one or something? Like, no one ever sticks with the recorder, but do you? Everyone advances past recorder, you know, at least to the clarinet. Sorry, Cat, behind if you <laughs> And we think the gospel, this, this idea of being born again, this idea of looking to Jesus, we think that it's like this basic principle that we need to advance past. It is in absolutely no way like the recorder. We must keep looking to Jesus. Did you know that bronze snake on a stick had to be destroyed? In Kings, 2 Kings, chapter 18, go look it up. They went and they started burning incense to it and worshipping it. They kept looking to the bronze serpent. It's like the opposite problem as we have. You know, when Jesus was lifted up, not only was the means of our salvation lifted up, but the author and perfecter of our salvation and of our faith was lifted up. So we can and we should and we need to continue to look at Jesus lifted up on the cross. We need to fix our eyes on him. He is our everything, our creator, the word who became flesh, our sustainer, our saviour, our teacher, our end goal, the one that we would be like. And some of us have taken our eyes off Jesus. Some of you have taken your eyes off Jesus. If you want to sum up the epistles, which are the letters of Jesus, of the letters from the, usually the apostles, particularly Paul wrote many of the most famous epistles. These are letters to kingdom people. If you're born again and you want to know what these letters say, if I was to ring them out, you know what it comes down to? It's a reminder, look to Jesus. And a reminder, remember, you are born again. It's just constant. I, just, I looked through, I started just reading epistle after epistle. It is constant. Fix your eyes on Jesus. You are the sons and daughters of God. In other words, you have been reborn into a new kingdom with a new father. You need to be compelled by Christ's love. Look to him on the cross. You're a new creation. What does that mean? You're born again. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. All these reminders are just look to Jesus and be reminded that you are new. You have been made new by this inside-out change. I just encourage you. I'm going to end now. And if if you've never looked to Jesus and been born again, I just encourage you to 
to, to be up the front here. We're going to have a team here at Westmore. And in Armadale, I just encourage you to leave some time and space for this. But if you never have looked to Jesus to be reborn, I encourage you to do that. We can pray with you. And some of you have just taken your eyes off Jesus. It's like you thought, I don't know if you got distracted or if you thought the gospel was like the recorder and you moved on. You need to look to Jesus. These sins that you're struggling with in your life, you know what the first thing you do to overcome sin is? You look to Jesus. The way into the faith is the way on in the faith. You look to Jesus and you are reborn. You look to Jesus and you are reminded that you are reborn. You are a new creation. I'm going to pray and then we'll leave some time at the front and if you don't want to be a part of that, you can go and have some morning tea and enjoy each other's company and maybe do Father's Day. Oh God, we can't do an outside-in change. We need an inside-out change from you. Oh Holy Spirit, come now. And move. I don't know how you do it, but I see its effects. We see it in Nicodemus as he asked for the body of Jesus at great risk. And he anointed the body of Jesus at great cost, but also embarrassment as it was a woman's job. There's... Your wind blows and we can see its effects. Oh, Spirit, come now and let us see your effect as you, as you, you bring new life to us and you enable us to be obedient followers of you. Amen.